Well, we'll be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Thank you, Nate, for reading that. I don't know if any of you watched the show Frasier while it was on. It was kind of a spinoff of Cheers. Maybe you watched Cheers a little bit growing up, but uh, Frasier focuses on this psychiatrist named Dr. Frasier Crane, and he hosts a radio talk show where people can kind of call in, and as a psychiatrist, he can then give them answers. And in one episode, Frazier falls ill. He's too sick to do his radio show. And thankfully, his brother Niles is actually a psychiatrist as well. So, so Niles is going to fill in for his brother. And his brother opens the show this way. This is Dr. Niles Crane filling in for my ailing brother, Dr. Frazier Crane, Although I feel perfectly qualified to fill Frazier's radio shoes, I should warn you that though Frazier is a Freudian, I am a Jungian, so there'll be no blaming mommy today. Right? It's It's a funny scene where he's picking on his brother, but it actually depicts something that's true, that you've got these two, at least you know, on the show, and this is true in reality, you've got these true, two well-trained, you know, present, currently, concurrently working psychiatrists who have two completely different views of man, and therefore two completely different views on how they should be helped. Niles mocks his brother because they disagree on what ails people, and so they have different solutions to what ails people. They disagree on how to help because they disagree on what people need. So this morning, we don't want to look to Freud or to Carl Jung. We want to look to God's Word and to see what kind of help do people need in light of a biblical understanding of man. Now, when I say man this morning, don't, don't, I mean mankind, all right? So if, if I say man a lot, I'm talking primarily about mankind. And so our view of man is going to drive the way we think we ought to minister to man. And obviously, there's lots of places we can go in Scripture. Dan read Psalm 139. We could have went to Psalm 8. Lots of places in Scripture we could go to help us understand man and and understanding that there's lots of things we're not going to be able to say this morning. There's lots of topics we're not going to be able to take up for ourselves. But I wanted to go to Genesis 1 and think through the purpose of man. Who, he, who man is is tied to his purpose. So our first point this morning is that man is a created person. Man is a created person. In Genesis 1, you, you likely know we find God creating. We find that God as creator, he is, he is preeminent. He is before all things, and therefore he has first place over all things because he is the, the, the means by which these things exist. He is of first importance because he pre-existed all of his creation. And he does a work that that, that we cannot replicate. In fact, that that verb created in 1.1, the verb created in uh, 1.27, it's not used of of humans. This is a word that's, that's applied only to God. He is creating Man might make something, we might build something, we might form something, but God is doing an act in Genesis 1 that only He can do, speaking things into existence by the power and authority of His voice. So from the opening pages of Scripture, we find that God is absolutely sovereign over all His creation. 
And his position as creator demands allegiance and submission to him from his creation. So creation should should fall in line according to his design for the world. In fact, for creation to sort of buck up against the design of the creator is is as crazy as a a clay pot telling the artist how how he should do his job. So we find in Genesis God creating light, water, dry land, vegetation, Sun, moon, stars, animals that are going to swim, animals on dry land. And you get this sense as you're reading this text that God is preparing this world for something. He is building this world as a perfect environment for the crowning glory of His creation, which is man. And that brings us then to our text, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see God here speaking, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now some have tried to take that word us and they say, well, maybe Maybe God's speaking with the angels there. But the Bible doesn't say that, that man is made in the image of God and angels. Right? So it seems better to take that as, as sort of a, 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 a glimpse of the divine conversation among the triune God. This is a conversation amongst the Godhead. Now, I'm not saying like in Genesis 1, 26, you've got a fully formed view of the Trinity. That, that's filled out elsewhere in Scripture, but it does certainly allow for that doctrine to develop throughout the pages of Scripture. And we see in this, in this conversation, let us make man in our image, that mankind is utterly unique. Man will be creation, that is true, but they will be unique among creation. In verse 24 of chapter 1, God spoke of creation this way, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. And so when you get to 126 and it says, let us make man in our images, there's a stark contrast between man and the rest of creation. God is particularly invested in man. Man is fashioned uniquely by God. So man stands in this unique position where they they are creation, subject to their creator, but they are over creation in some sense. Right? So, so their creation, they share the sixth day of creation with the other animals. They're dependent. We are dependent on the Creator, called to be fruitful and multiply like the animal world was, formed from the dust of the ground. Yet that tells half the story because God creates man unique and places them over His creation. And so we see that man is uniquely set apart by divine plan and fashioned in the image of God after His likeness, we read there in verse 26, to rule over creation. So man is created, dependent upon and under God's sovereign rule, but they are uniquely created. We might say it this way, it's not only the divine plan that distinguishes mankind, but it's the divine pattern. Let us make man how? After our image. So man is a created person first, 
Secondly, man is a created person in the image of God. I love the beauty and simplicity of verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God creates, and he creates man in his own image. This isn't said of dolphins or lions or beetles, and certainly not cats. <laughs> Sorry, I haven't made a cat joke in a long time. But this is the central truth that, that distinguishes man from the rest of creation. That they're made in the image of God. And this image is not just something that, that mankind possesses. It is, it is who they are. They are image bearers. One theologian said it this way. The whole being, the whole person in other words. Therefore, and not something in man, but man himself is the image of God. Man himself is the image of God. But what does that mean, right? We talk about that a lot. We should, we should dignify people and life because they're made in the image of God. But what does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, we might just state it simply this way, and then we'll tease it out a little bit. We might just say it, it means that we're created like God in many ways in order to reflect God and to bear His image. Right? We're, make, we're made like God in some important ways. And then we're called to reflect Him, uh, to reflect His nature, His character, His glory. You might say it this way, the, the image of God, you know, a lot of people, a lot of theologians fight back and forth and they say, well, no, I think that to be made in the image of God, just it, it's who you are. It's that you have intellect and emotion and will and, and, and desire. And, and then a lot of other theologians come back and they say, no, that's not true. It's what you do. And I'm not sure we have to pick. I, th I think it's both. I think the image of God is who you are. Humanity is cre created with certain capacities that allow them to interact with God, the, this, this world, allow them to interact with their neighbors in a way that is unique to mankind, right? We, we, we listed off a few examples of that earlier, but we might say, you know, man is rational above the rest of creation, right? We can think critically. We don't just act on, on, on instinct, right? They'll say... You know, well, you know, dogs are really smart. Well, yeah, because man tells a dog what to do and they do it, right? You see how man is rationally superior to the rest of the animal world. We are volitional creatures and that we, we, we make choices. We evaluate options and decide what to do. We are moral above the rest of creation. We possess a conscience that condemns us when we do wrong. You've never seen a lion kill a baby gazelle and think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. We speak and communicate in ways that far surpass the rest of creation, and we are relational creatures designed specifically to interact with God and this world. It's who you are. You have certain capacities about you because you're made in the image of God, but it was also a call. It was something to do. These capacities that God has gifted man with were meant to be used to display his glory and to rule over God's world. That's what an image does. It, it, it captures a reflection of reality. 
right? And so we were meant to reflect God back and forth to others. One reason it's not good for man to dwell alone. So when God makes man in his image, he not only uh, grants him these, these capacities, makes, makes man like himself in some of these important ways, thinking, speaking, rationality, but it's a commission to exercise those things in service to him and in glory to him. Right? You see that in verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. They were made in the image of God, and they were tasked with subduing, ruling over creation as, as representatives of God on earth. And in doing so, they were, they were meant to reflect God's moral nature, right? They were to love, they were to be just, they were to be generous and gracious and merciful. Mankind was designed again to to be a, a mirror by which the image of God would go forth, a reflection of God to mankind. Man was meant to represent God through his actions, and God has gifted him with everything necessary for that task. You know, the, think, think the illustration of, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar setting up a, a, a statue, right? Ancient kings would set up statues of themselves throughout the border, and that would demonstrate their rule. That would be a picture of their rule over this particular kingdom. When you see the statue, you know it's not the real thing, but, but it's, a, it's an image symbolizing that, that my rule and my reign is here. And what has God done? He hasn't set up statues. He set up living, breathing representations of himself that were designed to rule. And as you looked at each other, you say, man, God rules here. He is sovereign. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So male and female, men and women together are Image bearers, right? Mankind consists of two genders. Though men and women complement one another and, are, and, you know, and they are inherently different in some important ways, certainly not interchangeable with one another. Though that's true, they are equal before God. They are equal in image bearing and they are equal in salvation. Peter told husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. Why? Because they're co-heirs with you of the grace of life. And so this, we see, even in Genesis 127, that the rejection of, of God as creator, the rejection of the image of God in man, the rejection of male and female in creation has led to all kinds of moral confusion. Right? Carl Truman wrote a book. Uh, it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's pretty, it's pretty technical. He's got a more of a reader version. I think it's called Strange New World, if you want to check that out. But he set out to answer this question in his book. How did it happen that a statement my grandfather would have laughed at has become so commonplace that it is not only culturally accepted, but it's taboo to deny it? Now, you might be able to fill in the blank. What is the statement? The statement is, I am a a woman trapped in a man's body. It's moral confusion. 
Denial of creator, denial of God's created order. Interestingly, since, since Truman wrote the book like two years ago, you don't, you don't really hear that much anymore, right? You don't hear, I'm, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. What you just have is, I don't care what my body is, I'm this. I'm whatever I identify as, I am, I am whatever I choose to be. Well, if we, if we think rightly about man, right, there's no better way to help people and to love them than to treat them in a way that accords with truth, that accords with the Bible, which does mean, in fact, that we dignify people, right? We dignify each person as an image bearer while also pointing out the ways that the image has been marred And we hold out for people the hope of Christ who redeems us and transforms us into the image of Christ, into the image of God, so that we might fulfill our purpose in life. You see, uh, the, the image of God in man defines our purpose in life. As God at As Adam and Eve reflected God's nature and they obeyed His will, they would reflect His glory in in this world. They would glorify God as little images of His character and of His nature. And, 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 you know, we, we might look at a sunset and we say, oh, that's glorious. Because it demonstrates something of the character and the nature of God. So we are meant to, to live in a way that we demonstrate something of the character and the nature of God, and thereby God is glorified in us. This is the purpose for which man was made, and it's tied to the image of God. Isaiah 43, 7, God says, These are my people whom I've created for my glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, you, you, you may know whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, We make it our aim or our ambition or our goal. We make it our aim to please Christ. So we exist to glorify God, and we are specifically designed to do so as image bearers. So those who who hold to this biblical view of man find themselves out of step and at odds with this world. There's a fundamental difference between God's revelation of who man is and a secular humanistic view of mankind. The Bible says that we exist and are designed to glorify God, and in that there's great joy. The the, the fact is that our joy is wrapped up in knowing God and fulfilling the purpose for which we've been designed. So without the truth that God has revealed to us, people seek to define their own purpose. Many today assume that that, that purpose and happiness is found in, in individually expressing my own thoughts, my own feelings, fulfilling my own desires. And if that's true, then to, to fail to affirm someone in their desires is viewed as, as hatred. What's at root? What's at root? At root is, one, God as creator, but two, a fundamental misunderstanding that the purpose of life is wrapped up in who God is and who He designed man to be. So evidently, right, from Genesis 1, 26, 27, some of the things we're talking about, something went, something went wrong. Right? Because we, we look around 
our world. We study human history, and, and, and the reality is we don't want to just point out there this morning. We want to say, man, I look at my own heart, and I see that something's gone really wrong here, that I don't image God the way that, that I'm designed to do. I know my own heart well enough to know that I often fail to live unto the glory of God. So number three, our points are kind of building to like a sentence that's probably way too long, but I'm trying to follow the Apostle Paul and, you know, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 in the Greek's like one sentence. Man is a created person, point number three, in the image of God who is corrupted by sin. So flip with me over to Romans chapter 3. Today we may flip a little more than, than normal, but that's okay. Look there in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So there in Romans 3, you have no one, no one, all, no one, no one, no one, right? Five times. There's none righteous or no one righteous. There's no one who does good. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. No, not even one. So who's exempt from that? No one. Not only that, but, but, but Paul describes sort of the expression of this, this no one seeks for God, no one pleases God. What is it in verse 13? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if our, our, if our words are characterized by deceit and death, and our throat is an open grave, then Paul is condemning us here by our words. It's not just get better at talking. It's, it's your, your heart is corrupt, so the things that are coming out of your mouth are corrupt. And not only that, but their, their feet are swift to shed blood. There's this relational disruption because of, of sin. There's, there's violence in their paths or ruin and mis misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And then Paul gets to the root of the issue there in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what Paul's getting at in light of, in light of sin, we, we tend to elevate ourselves in terms of how we want to think about man, and then we devalue others by, by speaking to them in sinful ways, by being swift to shed violence. So I'll elevate and worship myself and live for myself, and then I'll treat other image bearers who I should love and sacrifice for with disdain. So how do we get from this wonderful mystery in verse 27 the man is created in the image of God, to Paul's description in chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Well, well, we know that Genesis 3 records the fall of Adam and Eve. Again, they were to rule over creation. They were to tend the garden. They were to exercise dominion. But they failed to subdue the first threat that arrived. Right? They're called to rule over creation. Here comes a created thing, the serpent. And they yield themselves to falsehood. They give themselves over to temptation. They rebel against God, their sovereign creator. 
Amazingly, this does not totally eradicate and erase the image of God in man. Humanity remains in the image of God after the fall. We would say that the image of God in man is distorted, it's maimed, we don't reflect His glory the way we're supposed to, but we're still image bearers. Genesis 9.6 institutes capital punishment. Why? Because man is made in the image of God. You can't just go kill people and say, well, you're a worthless sinner, so your life doesn't matter. No, that's an image bearer, and so their life matters. We just saw God speaking this way about the Ninevites. Should I not care about the Ninevites? James 3.9, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Why can't I just go around slandering people? Because they're image bearers. They're made in the image of God. The, the man who oppresses the poor offends his maker. Why? Because the poor person is made in the image of God. So we must treat others with dignity and respect because they, are, they, they remain in the image of God. But though every person retains the status as an image bearer, an essential aspect of the image is lost. Again, it's that what we were supposed to do. I mean, if we fail to do that, we no longer do that. If you're still in Romans 3, you can look over at verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think kind of the common assumption is, is that, that that just means little more than, well, you know, I, I sort of failed to live for the glory of God. Right, I failed to live for the glory of God. And that's true. That, that would be a true statement, but I don't think that's what Paul's saying here in 3.23. That word, to fall short, it, it means to lack something. To be in want. Here's what I think Paul is getting at. In our sinful state, we, we lack that original glory that Adam and Eve possessed before the fall. Remember we said like a sunset you might say is glorious because it reflects the nature and the character of God? Well, you could say Adam and Eve were, were glorious. That's what Psalm 8 says. They were crowned with glory and honor. They were glorious in some sense, not in and of themselves, but because they were designed to reflect God's glory to one another. Here's how Douglas Moo says it. Paul then is indicating that all people fail to exhibit that quote, being like God for which they were created. They lack that which they were created to do, which is to reflect God's glory in this world. They remain in the image of God, but they fail to reflect that image and fulfill their purpose in this world, to glorify God. Thus, the glory that Adam and Eve possessed, the capacity and the willingness to fulfill God's will by imaging Him in creation, that was lost. Still a life, still in the image in some sense, still important to God. Yet the glory of actively, actively reflecting God's nature and character destroyed in man at the, at the fall. And all of us, born in Adam, Right? We're chips off the old block. We were talking about that in men's Bible study. If you, take a, if you take a block of granite and you knock a chunk of that off, what's the chunk made out of? Granite. It's still granite. Right? 
Well, here you have Adam giving himself over into sin, and, and everybody that came after him just chips off the old block. So, so when Adam sinned, we all sinned in that sense, because what, what was Adam? He was a rebel, and I was born a rebel because I am a chip off the old block. So all of us, Paul says, all of us fall short. We lack that. We've sinned against God. All without distinction fall short of the glory of God. Before we get to our last point here, consider that, that sin is so pervasive, right? We use that word corrupt if, you, if you're keeping notes, if you have notes. We use that word corrupt on, on purpose because it distorted every aspect of man. Our minds were darkened. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Our minds were darkened and futile. They became futile in their understanding. Our wills were bound in selfishness. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that one of the reasons Christ died was to set us free from the slavery to self. Our wills were bound. Our emotions were, were, were misdirected, misapplied. Our bodies in Romans chapter 7 delight in sin. And part of what makes sin so revolting and so rebellious to the Lord is that we used the, the benefits that God has granted man as image bearers, our mind, our will, our emotion, our, our body, our intellect, our volition, all those, all those gifts that were given to us th that we might use them to worship and glorify God. We use those very things to rebel against Him. So, in an important sense, Every person is an image bearer. But the result of sin is that that image is corrupted. It's been distorted. And then what do we need? We need to be renewed. We need to be renewed into the image of God. Right? Point number four. This is where that sentence gets really long. Man is a creative person in the image of God who is corrupted by sin and can only walk in his God-given purpose through union with Christ can only walk in his God-given purpose through union with Christ. In the incarnation, when Jesus takes on flesh, when he, when he comes to this earth, we see the glory of the image of God that man lacks in Romans chapter 3. Right? We've fallen short of the glory. Jesus possesses that glory. We beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father. That's because Jesus is the image of God. Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, chapter 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the, the exact imprint of his nature. And so as the God-man, Jesus uniquely demonstrates the glory of God. He impeccably lived under the will of God in complete, joyful submission to the Father. Jesus perfectly reflects perfectly demonstrates the image of God. He is the image of God. Always doing God's will. And we see in his life that Jesus actually passes where Adam failed, right? Adam, Adam's tempted in the garden. Adam and Eve are tempted in the garden. They fail, plunging all of humanity into sin. Adam as a, as a representative. Jesus, the second Adam, goes out in the wilderness, 
He's not in the garden. He's in the wilderness. Jesus tempts him. Jesus defeats Satan. He defeats every temptation. He passes where Adam and Eve failed. And Jesus perfectly fulfills the purpose of humanity. He is the one that Psalm 8 is true of. He's truly crowned with glory and honor. And He will do what Adam and Eve couldn't do, what you and I couldn't do. He will bring all creation under His sovereign rule upon His appearing. But we know that this path to the sovereign rule, this path to, to the crown, goes through the cross. And in this death and resurrection, Christ paved the way for us to be reconciled to God and subsequently brought to Him and united to Him and His purpose. You might say it this way, in our union with Christ, we share in the benefits that He won. The blessings and benefits that He won flow to those who are united to Him by faith. So our fundamental problem is that we have fallen short of the glory of God, and Jesus has come as the one who did not fall short, who perfectly represented man to God and God to man, and He makes a way for us to be renewed. So how we define the problem determines where we look for our solution. We mentioned a few things earlier, but if, if, if the fundamental problem is that I'm not free to fulfill every desire, if that's my fundamental problem, or if my fundamental problem is my my biological makeup, or my fundamental problem is my circumstances or my relationships, then I will look out there for solutions to my problem. And if those cannot be changed, we're left without any hope. I can't always change my relationships. I can't always change my circumstances. I can't always change my body. I can't always change my desires. So if my hope lies in those things, then I am actually utterly helpless. I'm stuck. But there's a better way, right? If I admit that my fundamental problem is my own sin, my own rebellion against God, that I use my God-given capacities to sin against Him, then I'll look to Christ. I'll look to Christ, the one who perfectly exemplified love and willingly laying down His life for us. Psalm 103.10 says He does not deal with us according to our sin, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And what happened on that cross is that God the Father treated the Son according to our sins, so that He might treat us according to the righteousness of Christ. He made Him who knew no sin to be sinned on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus gives real hope, reconciles us back to God, and actually frees us then to walk in our God-given purpose. So flip over. If you're still in Romans, go a few books over to Colossians. We're going to kind of pick up in the middle of the chapter 3 there in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Interestingly, verse 9, do not lie to one another. You remember what what Paul said? 
was the result of the fall in Romans chapter 3, that our, our, our tongues are full of deceit. And now in Colossians chapter 3, he's saying, don't, don't do that. Do not lie to one another. Why? Because in coming to Christ, you became a, a new creation. In coming to Christ, you became a new creation. The old self was taken off like a dirty shirt, taken off, and, and, and the new self has been put on. In other words, you're no longer identified with, with Adam who rebelled. You're no longer identified with that. You're identified with Christ, the perfect image bearer who obeyed on your behalf. And because of this, because you're a new creation in Christ, you're no longer, you might say it this way, you're no longer in Adam, now you're in Christ. Or to use Paul's words here in Colossians 3, the old self taken off, the new self put on. Because of that, we're called to live then in a new way, the way of Christ. In other words, since the old self's been taken off, now, live, now, now put away those practices that characterize the old life. You can see them there in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Down there in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander. So, so the, the behaviors associated with the old self, we resist, and we want to walk in those practices that are associated with Christ. Because we're no longer in Adam, we are in Christ. In fact, you see a really clear example of it there in verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, how? Like Christ, as the Lord has forgiven you. So as those who have been united with Christ, we seek to to put off those practices consistent with the old self, put on those practices consistent with Christ. So, so the putting off and the putting on, the union with Christ, that's, that's something that if, if you're in Christ this morning, that's a, that's a past event. It, it's done. You're not called to, oh, just put on Christ every day. No, it's, that's done. You're called to live consistent with who God has declared you to be in Christ Jesus. So the old man put off, the new man put on, and it's interesting what Paul says, that, that, that now we're in the process, right? Because you, you feel like that pull that Paul talks about in Romans 7. Man, I, I feel the pull of the flesh. So what, what's going on? Well, we're in the process of being renewed. Renewed into what? The image. Renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So even though we're new creations, we're still in process. And together as the body of Christ, we are renewed in the image of, of God together. So that part, that Romans 3.23, right? That part of the image that was distorted, that part of the image that was marred, it is being renewed in those who are found in Christ. From justification onward, the believer is being transformed by the Spirit to the image of Christ, who is the image of God. And so we said earlier that, you know, we, we use sort of these God-given capacities to rebel against God, our mind, our will, our emotions, our bodies. Well, think about the way we're being renewed. 
right? Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So in Jesus Christ, he's renewing our, our minds that were darkened in our understanding. They were futile in their, their understanding. Our wills are being brought in a, into alignment with God's will. Philippians 2, 13 Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our emotions are progressively being conformed to Christ and properly expressed. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And our bodies can be brought under submission through the power of the Spirit so that we're not just driven by the desires of the flesh all through the work of the Spirit given to you in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this is by the Spirit, Paul says. So as we behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ, we're being conformed progressively to His image. And in that sense, we're moving towards the purpose for which man was designed, to image God. You know, I was in a library back in Missouri several years ago, and they, they had erected this display in the lobby, and it was sort of a, a path through evolution, you know, and you sort of start in, in the beginning, and it's the Big Bang or whatever. And, and as, you, as you kind of meander through this, this thing, you're learning that man came about by, by chance, very, very low chance, survival of the fittest, time, lots and lots of time. That's, that's how you got here. And then, and then at the end of the exhibit, they had these sticky notes on a wall, and you're supposed to take a sticky note, and on the wall it said, what does it mean to be human? And so I've just walked through this thing where, where I, I'm an animal, now, what does it mean to be human? And I'm reading what people wrote. To love people. To be a good person. To be happy. And I'm, I'm thinking there's a fundamental disconnect between what I just saw and what's written on this, this wall. If I'm nothing more than, than time plus matter plus chance, now, sacrificially love your neighbor. It doesn't, why would I do that? But those answers that people... I think inherently, even though they were just misled, they inherently understood something to be true. And I think it's because they're in the image of God. We find the purpose of, of man revealed to us, that we exist to glorify God by becoming like Christ, who is the perfect image of God. But we were so far removed from that that the Bible says we required not just renovation. right? We required a new nature. We needed to be born again. We needed to be made alive. And from that point on, I can be renewed in the image of Christ. So what kind of help do people need? What kind of help does God expect His church to be giving to, to one another? We, we want to glorify God. We want to become like Christ. The ultimate hope is to point people to Jesus Christ, the one who has come into the world to save sinners and has gifted his body with the Holy Spirit to transform them into his glorious image. 
God expects his church to be pushing one another, not towards greater social, you know, hey, let's, let's have more volleyball tournaments, which I love volleyball, right? I'm not, I don't know why that even came to my mind. But it's to push one another to be like Christ. With humility and gentleness, with slowness and patience, to, to push each other to become like Christ, to speak the truth and love to one another so that we grow up into him. And we do this sort of ministry. We do this sort of ministry, coming alongside each other, knowing that this is a, a community project. It's not something I can do on my own or you can do on your own. It's a community project. We come alongside one another, knowing that one day God will complete his work in us. God will complete his work in us. Listen to the way the Apostle John brings these two things together. All right, become like Christ, and God's going to finish it one day. We'll end with this. Beloved we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like Christ, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Why purify yourself? Because one day Jesus is going to complete that work in us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. And even as we try our best to take a broad look, Lord, we see your glorious message in it. We believe that this has not come from man's hand, but from you. And thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for the gospel of Christ by which we might be united with him and share in all the spiritual blessings available in Christ. May we rejoice in that. And may we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ and to help those around us to be conformed to Christ, knowing that one day that will be complete. And we'll put off these old bodies that wrestle with the effects of the flesh and put on new, glorious, resurrected bodies and live as perfect image bearers for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.